Welcome to the Banyan Edge Podcast. Here's your host, Charles Sizemore. Welcome. If you like sports and you like numbers and you like numbers about sports all the best, then today you are in for a treat because I'm welcoming to the show the illustrious Mr. Matt Clark, our resident uh, walking sports encyclopedia. He's also our senior analyst, but you know, let's focus on the sports encyclopedia. Uh, if you were a superhero, you would be not the human torch, you'd be the human sports encyclopedia vanquishing the forces of evil with your knowledge of sports statistics. I had no idea where this was, where you were going with that. Not a not a clue what direction you were going. Well, I think I got there. That's the important thing. Um, we'll say I did. But anyway, I, welcome, Matt. It, it's good to have you on again. Um, and today, uh, we're going to talk about what, what what inspired all this was our colleague uh, Mike Carr actually published a piece about two weeks ago about the biases that humans have and how that can lead to suboptimal decision making and uh, particularly in investing. That made me think about a book that I'd read a while back, uh, The Undoing Project by Mr. Michael Lewis, uh, who is also the author of Moneyball and The Big Short, um, among others. So um, Michael Lewis is a very talented writer in that I think the dude could read names out of a phone book and somehow make it compelling and interesting and even scandalous. Like that's uh, He really has a knack for that. But uh, at any rate, uh, I wanted to bring you on because I wanted to talk about some of these biases and, and how they're how they present themselves in, in, in daily life. And it's the kind of the takeaway is when humans rely on their judgment alone, they tend to make poor decisions because our brains are not very good at, at processing that. We saw it in sports uh, as um, the movie Moneyball illustrated. It turns out that baseball scouts really weren't very good at their jobs, were they? Well, you know, it's not that they weren't necessarily good at their jobs. It's just they focused on the same old, same old. It was the same old metrics, the same old physicality, the same the same things that had been had been looked at since the 40s. And and, and the problem with with baseball scouting, at least up until, you know, the early 2000s is a lack of evolution. And, and uh, you know, you had baseball scouts, some of which are very, were very, very good. And by the way, you know, why were they still using, the, you know, numbers from the 1940s? Well, when they started collecting baseball stats back then, they didn't have the record keeping capabilities we have now. They basically kept the stats that were available. And then that became the norm. That became the status yeah. quo. And those stats were very rudimentary, at least by today's comparison. So, you know, you you had scouts that, you know, they had in their mind a picture of what they were looking for. And the picture was based on, you know, what the person looked like, um, how the how, how the person's swing was, how the pitcher, how the pitcher released the ball. Um, you know, what was the speed of the fastball? What was the drop of the curveball? Things like that. Some which, things by that, the way, which has a fancy name called the representative bias. Yes. You look for players that kind of reminded you of somebody else. Like, oh, this guy's the next Barry Bonds. This guy's the next whatever, Nolan Ryan. And instead of seeing them for what they were, you 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 created this narrative in your mind. And that, and that, you know, and that's often how scouts would present potential draft prospects to general managers or people in baseball management. It's like, I've got the next insert big name here. Um, I have the next 
uh, Nolan Ryan. I have the next Barry Bonds. I have the next, you know, what a Ken Griffey, you know, whoever that, that of is. Of all the thousands of baseball players that have come and gone, you chose to use the same examples I did. I did. Um, you know, <laughs> just, just because uh, you left them out there for me. So I took them okay. and, 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 you know, and that, that to a degree works, but when you get into the money ball situation, what you have here at the root of it all Moneyball is basically a movie about money, and and, and you know it, exactly you're 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 gonna, you're, 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 you're thinking that it's about it, it's about how baseball transformed how it operates, and it's it is kind of, but that's not the root of, of Moneyball. No, it's not about money. It's about it's it's about using data to make better decisions. See and that, save that money, and, and, and that's true. However, what spurred it all about wasn't that. It was it was it wasn't that at all. It was the fact that you have a team, the Oakland A's, very prominent, very historical team, started off in Philadelphia as the Philadelphia A's, uh, moved to one Oakland. of my favorite teams as a kid, man. I remember the Ricky Henderson days. I was one of my favorite baseball players. Yeah. Absolutely, uh, but you have a team here that's in a very small market by comparison to, to New York, to Chicago, to Los Angeles, even you know, next door San Francisco. Yeah. Exactly. And and at the end of the day, you know, Steve Schott, the owner of the A's, just didn't have the the capital to to start, you know, spending big uh in 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 free agency, in the draft, things like that. So when Billy Bean and the A's lost prominent players like Jason Isringhausen, uh, you know, Giambi, um, Johnny Damon, uh, you know, he's left with a problem. How do I replace these guys? I don't know how to do it. So you really, he, he first leans on his scouting department to say, okay, how are we going to do this? And they start bringing up these big names, you know, these, these big name free agents that they could possibly bring in. And the thing is, is the A's didn't have the money. So he goes and has a meeting with the Cleveland Indians to look at a potential, I think, outfielder, I believe. And, and in this meeting is, is the general manager of the Oakland, uh, of the Oakland, F, um, not Oakland rather, but of the Cleveland Indians and a gentleman named Paul D. Podesta. Paul DePodesta was a special assistant to the general manager um, and kind of the heart of the Moneyball story. Now, in the movie, he's portrayed as Peter Brand, which is um, not his real name. He insisted that his likeness or his name not be used in the movie at all. Very cooperative with Jonah Hill, loved Jonah Hill, loved the movie, didn't really want to be associated with it. But his name is actually Paul DePodesta. And, and he, you know, was starting the process of developing um, a system where raw data could be used in, in terms of, of translating player performance and also translating into team need. So, so specifically, you know, they would model, do RBIs matter? You know, does raw batting average matter? Do these things actually pre predict performance? And exactly. what they found was, yeah, they, they, they do, but there's other stats that used together predict it better on base percentage was a much better indicator than batting average uh that that's that was the biggest one right there but then but then there were others as well there they think they even calculated things like the speed at which they swung the bat i mean they, they mm -hmm. really dove into like really really granular level detail and it, it worked like they found that because of an availability bias you know using another uh fancy term there people had been using the numbers that were available and that's because that's what they had, but they weren't necessarily reflective or, or they weren't really indicative of future success. So when you did, did a deep dive on the data, which was the first time anybody had really ever done this outside of fantasy sports, it was the first time it had been done in, in the wild. 
it actually yielded good results. You know, the A's went on to have a very, very competitive uh, run. They made the postseason, what, five out of seven years or something? It was, it they, was a very- uh, the, the very first year of Moneyball, the uh, A's set an American League record of 20 consecutive wins. Uh, I believe they won the World Series. They missed. They they lost out in the playoffs that year. I believe they won the series two years later, uh, uh, using the same type of strategy. And, 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 and but by the way, by the way, this actually proves another aspect about statistics: is a seven-game World Series or a seven-game playoff series actually enough of a sample size to really determine who's best, right? If you're really going to have like, like a statistically robust model of who is the best baseball team, they have to have like 30 matches. (laughs) They have to play each other like 30 times or something, For sure. which, but uh, anyway, that's, that's a tangent for, for, for another deal. But um, interestingly, what ended up being, I I can't say the kind of leveling this was as is the case in markets in trading strategies. Once somebody sees an indicator that works, you get people copying it. And so now everybody has a data department. Now everybody's looking at these same statistics. You know, everybody is, is, is doing this. So all of a sudden, your ability to find undervalued assets, whether it's a stock, whether it's a baseball player, whether it's whatever, uh, a Renaissance masterpiece painting, like whatever, fill in the blank, whatever that asset is, your ability to find um, that undervalued asset, you know, the, the models kind of become self-correcting, right? So uh, that is interesting. If you're in this data business, you have to continually look for the next indicator, you know, this new uncovered uh, data point. You have to always dig, dig deeper. So I thought that was that was interesting. But, you know, where, uh, where, where, where do we go from there? So money, everyone knows Moneyball because Brad Pitt was in the movie and basically anything Brad Pitt touches turns to gold. And so everybody knows it, right? But the same, the same, process has happened in every sports yeah uh, soccer teams have data analysis football uh, whatever um michael lewis in in the undoing project which was a later book than the moneyball he spends the first part of the by the way the book is great it's actually mostly biographical about daniel Can, uh, kahneman and amos diversky the two israeli psychologists that they weren't economists by the way they were psychologists who ended up winning Nobel prizes in economics because they basically they basically kicked the entire profession as it was known out the window and, and started from scratch. But anyway, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Uh, he dedicates the first part of the book to basketball stats. And the equivalent of Moneyball happened first in, in Houston. The Houston Rockets hired a gentleman named Daryl, uh, uh, what was his name, Morey, Daryl Morey, Morey, who was a... Uh, he was a business consultant. He had nothing. He liked basketball. He was a fan, but I mean, he couldn't, you know, hit a jump shot to save his life. He never played competitive basketball. He was a nerd with a calculator. He was not, he was not a jock. Right. And they gave him the job of basically going through their processes, you know, seeing what they're doing wrong, seeing what they could do better, you know, seeing if, if their scouts are really evaluating players well. And what they found was, Big surprise, basketball scouts really aren't any different than the baseball scouts. They tended to value the wrong things, and they tended to have certain representative uh, biases. They would look for the next Magic Johnson, the next Michael Jordan, the next Shaq, the next fill-in-the-blank, and they would fail to see a, a, a completely you know, new emerging talent in front of them. Fine example is Steph Curry. Steph Curry made no sense uh, as a prospect. He's, you know, from, uh, 
you know, a sharpshooter, not particularly athletic, not particularly fast. I mean, he could shoot the ball like no one had ever seen before, but yeah, big deal. I mean, every team's always had a long bomber like that, who this guy, this guy's not that special. So he was overlooked and then he ended up changing the game. And now everybody shoots three pointers from half court because Steph Curry proved that you, (laughs) that's a viable strategy. If uh, your percentage is going to be lower than, than, you know, closer to the basket, but you get that extra point. So the math works out. Right. But what I thought was particularly interesting is the, uh, the biggest bias, the biggest case of bias we've seen was the case of Jeremy Lin. You remember him, right? I do. So it's funny. This is a case of, uh, and by the way, there's direct uh, implications for investing here. The death of a quant trader, the death of a quantitative analyst investor is not having the guts to follow your model. Second guessing your model and allowing your human intuition to override it almost always results in disaster. You're either, you know, you're either doing this with discretion or you're doing it with the system. But when you try to mix the two or you second guess your system, you will fail. And that happened to the Rockets. The Rockets had run an analysis on you know every player, and then, you know they ran the numbers on Jeremy Lin. And by their model, he should have been roughly the fifteenth draft pick that year. Uh, he was not drafted at all, not by the Rockets, not by anybody. And in fact, he was very close to quitting basketball because he couldn't get a gig. I mean, I, he couldn't. Nobody wanted to sign him. Like he ended up signing as a free agent, never got playing time, kind of shuffled around from team to team, and then one day. The Knicks, I mean, the entire team was injured, I think. And he was like the last guy on the bench that put him in. Well, he lit up Kobe Bryant for 40 points. And not too many people light up Kobe Bryant for 40 points. Kobe Bryant was a almost sociopathic competitor. If you try to light him up for 40 points, he would destroy you. Like, like that's, that's, that, that's who he was. That, that's why he was so great. Well, why did Jeremy Lin go unnoticed? And it came back to the representative bias. Nobody ever seen an Asian American guard. Not really, like not at a, not at a high level. You had had uh, Yao Ming from from China, but he was also a seven foot four giant, and he was also foreign. He was from China. He was not Asian American. And so, because you know the, the what what they discovered, what they you know digging through the data, digging you know just talking to people. What they discovered was, yeah, I mean, the basketball scouts are almost exclusively white or black. There were no Asian scouts and white and black scouts tended to look at white and black players. They just didn't really consider Jeremy Lin. The idea of an it's not like they were intentionally biased against him or didn't like the guy. They just didn't notice him. They didn't take him seriously because of his background. And you know he he went on to be one of the better players of what should have been his draft year. Of course, he went undrafted. Now, where that gets interesting, of course, is you can think of a thousand parallels here to investing. Just as people look for that next Michael Jordan or, or whatever, you know, they might look for the next Walmart. But then when they look for the next Walmart, they don't find the next Walmart and they end up missing the next Amazon or, or not the next, but the current Amazon, right. Or, or et cetera. They're looking for the next Amazon and they miss, you know, the social media revolution. So I, I think this is, this, this is great. Uh, did, did you, uh, what were your takeaways? I mean, I know you read the basketball chapter. I, I, I know you, you're, you're, you're the sports guru. <laughs> you know, the thing is, is this, it all boils down to emotion. 
And and regardless of what kind of bias you, you want to label it with, with with Jeremy Lin, with players like Marcus All, for example. Oh, that with, was they dedicated a whole chapter to Marcus All. That's and right. that was that was the first chapter of the book. Was, and, was and, uh, you're right. He uh, <laughs> Gasol actually rated high on his system as well. Like he should have been a high draft pick, but somehow they saw a picture of him with his shirt off and he looked chubby. And and that was a turnoff. And, and it was and so. He did it. So it, it really just kind of gets boiled down to emotion. It's kind of the same thing that baseball scouts got wrapped up in. It's the same thing that football scouts got wrapped up in. And by the way, uh, sports teams now actually call them analytics departments. They're not statistical departments. They're analytics departments. And just about every major team, at least here in the U.S. and even abroad in Europe, have analytics departments. Colleges, college football programs invest millions in data analytics for not only recruiting, but also for gameplay. And it has become a huge business operation, uh, both on the college and the pro level here in the States and the pro level abroad, regardless. Uh, but it, it comes down to emotion. And I think if, if you talk or specifically to, controlling your emotions. Exactly. And, and if you talk to, um, you know, any uh, any of us within the Banyan Hill family, whether it be Ian King, Mike Carr, Charles Mizrahi, Adam O'Dell, uh, Amber, Amber Lancaster, myself, Whoever, the one thing that we, we will continually tell you about when it comes to emotion is you want to keep emotion out of the picture completely. Now, it's very hard to do. And, and just like even with the advent of Moneyball, there were a lot of growing pains within the A's organization and subsequently afterwards with even the Red Sox organization, who invested tons of money into it, offered Billy Bean to be the highest paid general manager in sports ever in the history of sports, yes, and he and he turned it down. But you know, there were there there are growing pains, and it's not instantaneous success. And a lot of times, as humans, when we look at that and we don't have that instant gratification of success of a trade that just immediately goes our way or or something like that, emotion also, tends to come into play. And it, and it's a, in, with any sort of statistical model, you you do have to. It, it's a, it's a matter of repetition, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have a single draft year to work with, or a single trade, if you're talking about um, you know trade trading, then you know your probability of success. It's it's it could be almost a coin flip. I mean, it's better than a coin. If if your model is good, your your probabilities are going to be better than a coin flip, of course. But you're there's still a good chance that any single iteration will fail because there is a lot of randomness. You have to do this, rinse and repeat several times. Whether it's you know a basketball draft where, okay, you know this guy rated high, but he ended up being a bust because, hey, he's human and whatever. Maybe he blew out a knee. I mean, who knows, right? The same with the stock. You know, A stock met all of your criteria. And for some reason, it didn't work out because you find out, oh, well, the CEO was, you know, I don't know, embezzling or something, whatever. I mean, there could be any number of reasons why trade just doesn't work out, even if it rated highly before. So it is a matter of, of kind of containing your emotions and allowing the process to work because it doesn't always work on day one or you know, there's always going to be some setback. And what we found in sports was whether it was the athletics, the Red Sox, the Houston Rockets, they had this constant tendency, even the quants themselves had this constant tendency to second guess and to override their models, which nearly every time they did, they, they regretted doing so. And the other thing to, to take into account here is you mentioned this earlier, especially with um, baseball scouting, and that is looking at you know, what data are you looking at? It's the same thing with stocks. And, and what I mean by that is that there are so many different um 
data points for stocks. You can look at just price action. You can look at underlying metrics of the company. You can look at so many different things. The challenge becomes, what are the right things to look at? And every model is different. And that's the other thing. Once you have your model built, you know, you you have to factor these things in. There are those intangibles, like you know, what if the CEO is embezzling? What if it's what if they get hammered on earnings, things like that? Well, your model doesn't tell you that because we're talking strictly numbers. And, um, and so, also, and also playing the same analogy, let's let's say a, a basketball player was highly rated. You have all this data to support a decision, but then you find out last week he injured his ankle. Well, I mean, that's not going to be reflected in the stats. So you do have to look for data that that may con that may not. You know, that may not have been included, may not have been considered by your model. That's not, in that case, you're not overriding the model. You're just looking for any potential flaws. The idea here is whenever you're looking at this, uh, you know, especially from an investment perspective, is you, you want to develop a model that can be a, a mixture of all-encompassing yet not overwhelming. Um, it's very easy to just have data vomit. And just have, you know, you are looking at everything and that's fine, but it's not going to tell you that it's not going to give you the real picture. It's also possible to really limit the size of your data and what you're looking at in terms of a stock. And even then you're not getting an accurate picture. So you have to try to strike some sort of a balance in terms of what factors, what data points are you looking at to analyze potential investments? Um, and, and, well, no, that's... and it is, it can be a case of kind of throwing that proverbial plate of spaghetti on the wall and seeing what sticks. I, you, you model it with, you know, you, you try this indicator, you model it. Does, does this improve my model or does it take away from it? Or is there no effect? Okay. Well, this one, there's no, there's no improvement, you know, chuck it. You, you, you always look for new indicators that can improve, whether it's basketball, whether it's investing, whether it's whatever business analytics, you you always look to improve the model by adding those extra factors that could have predictive value, but not all factors will. Um, determining the first letter of a basketball player's middle name is probably not statistically significant. <laughs> no, not usually. <laughs> not not usually. You wouldn't think so. But you know the explosiveness of his first two steps. Yeah, that 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 could be that could be significant. That might be worth modeling. So. Yeah, yeah, you can have data overload. Yeah, you can't include all factors in a model. You can test, you know, infinite numbers of factors to see which ones stick, which ones actually have predictive power, and then stick with the ones that do. And at the end of the day, if you're looking for that model that's going to give you number one, a hundred percent accuracy, and number two, a hundred percent guarantee winning, you're not going to find it. Doesn't no, matter. just call me. I got it. I got it. It's cool. <laughs> Charles Sizemore is your is your is your crystal ball, and that's because that's the thing. I mean, data tells a great story. Data is not not biased. Data, uh, while it can be manipulated, if you're if you're looking at it just uh, on its face value the way you should be, it tells you the story that you're looking to tell. The problem is, is you just don't want to get into a confirmation bias to where you're just looking for something that confirms what you're seeing. What you want exactly. is you want to confirm. You want to be able to confirm or deny what you're seeing. And, yeah. and that's why it's important to, well, to make by the way, sure that you have did, did you ever take stats in college? Did, did you ever take a stats? Yeah, oh, so you sure. know how it is. Your, mm -hmm. your null hypothesis is, is always, you basically start with a negative and you have to, un, you basically, it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's like a court of law. It's not guilty mm -hmm. or innocent. It's guilty or not guilty, right? Correct. It's like your, your hypothesis is, 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 you know, not proven, right? 
Correct. So uh, that's that that's that is how you have to think. Oh, I want to go back for a second, talking about other analogies between sports and investing. Um, Lewis writes about what's called the endowment effect, mm-hmm. and this is interesting because it it it's a, a human characteristic that you see all the time. You tend to value something that's yours. You tend to get attached to it and assign more value than it actually deserves. Mm-hmm. And what the the Houston Rockets found was that when they would be presented with trade opportunities they would value their own players more. They would end up declining trades that could have been good for them because they overvalued their own players. And what they had to do was to get out of that mindset was to put themselves in the position of the other team. Like, okay, let's pretend we don't already own this guy. Would we actually go out and trade for him if we didn't already have him? And it's not, of course, simple to make yourself think that way, but, but that's the exercise they would have to do. And a lot of times they said like, well, I mean, if we had a draft pick, would we trade that draft pick for this guy we have, or would we take our chances in the draft? Well, we'd probably take our chances in the draft. Well, then why aren't we making this trade? Because that other team offered us their draft pick for this player. So uh, you know, they, they did that. I see the same thing with investing all the time. You may be dispassionate about a stock, right up until you buy it. You may have not have cared a thing about whatever, make one up, Apple. And then you buy Apple and now all of a sudden this is my stock. This is my precious. And you know, you, you uh you know now it, you know you overvalue it. You you end up perhaps not selling it when you should or trading it for another stock when you should because you 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 put it on a pedestal, you inflate it because of this what's called that endowment effect. I thought that was interesting. Uh, it is kind of, yeah. You know, b- because you have done it, you have taken this step. Therefore, you are assigning additional value to whatever it is you're doing. Uh, you know, football teams in Europe do this. Soccer teams in Europe do the same thing. And it's and you can weed this out, and you can see this during the transfer period when players start negotiating with other teams. Teams start negotiating with other teams. There's usually something involved called a transfer fee. And what this is is a team that's interested in a player that doesn't play for their team has to negotiate some sort of a release clause fee with the team the player is playing for. And a lot of times that fee can be excessive. I'll give you an example. Uh, Harry Kane, one of the uh, very prolific English uh, striker, plays for Tottenham Hotspur. Um, And he's been in negotiation with Bayern Munich uh, in Germany to move from Tottenham, his boyhood club, to Germany. And, And Bayern has made or had made at least three different offers to Tottenham, ranging from 90 million all the way to $110 million to essentially buy the rights of Harry Kane. And Tottenham on all three of those occasions said, no, that we, we want more. Now, does that mean that Harry Kane is worth $110 million? No, he's not. Does that mean Harry Kane was worth $90 million? No, he's not. He's, I mean, he's a great player, great striker, but he's not $90 million. There's very few players on, on the planet right now that are worth that kind of money. But this is where you have an entitlement bias with Tottenham Hotspur because they've had Harry Kane since his development. Uh, they feel like they've invested all this all this time and money into him. He's produced very well for them. Uh, and, and so now they have assigned this massive value. And you look at it with other players like Neymar, with uh, uh, Kylian Mbappe at PSG, Lionel Messi, for example, there's another one, you know, and this is why you see Saudi clubs that are just throwing money, hundreds of millions of euros at players um, because clubs will take it because they have an entitlement feeling that, well, 
that's how that's what that player is worth to us. And at the end of the day, is that the transfer value of that player? No, it's probably half that. Um, but it's yeah. you know exactly the same thing. Sorry yeah. to riff. I, I, I was giving a, a different example. So. So, but, so we always like to make the podcast actionable, right? So we've been sort of, you know, philosophizing about sports and all that here for the last uh, several minutes. Let, let's bring this back and, and make it actionable. So, you know, we talked about that, 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 that endowment effect where like you, you value things. How do you overcome that? Well, you overcome it by having rules. You, you you do that knowing that before I buy this stock, I'm going to have the conditions laid out of when I sell it. Do I sell it when I hit a certain price target or do I sell it if it goes the other way on me and, and I hit a stop loss? Uh, or is it more fundamental based? I, I sell it if I see gross margins deteriorate by X percent. I, I buy more if I see them improve. Yeah, whatever it just, but you, you need to have some sort of rules in place beforehand and you need to stick to the rules and that helps you kind of overcome that, that psychological bias. Now kind of casting the net wider, you work very closely with Adam and mm -hmm. Adam, you know, we, we joke, we're not entirely sure Adam's human. He might be some sort of sentient <laughs> android who is, you know, <laughs> he, he, from Star he, Trek, you know, he certainly has an advanced mind. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> and he has emotional control. Now, for all I know, he may go home and like smash things and like, you know, no. shoot the side of his barn uh, with a, a gun. For all uh, I know. I mean, no. but uh, <laughs> he always seems like cool hand Luke to me. He, he's very calm, very collected. Um, he makes uh, very quantifiably rational decisions, mm -hmm. particularly when he invests. And one of the ways that he, you know, one of the ways he structures this and he makes it available to the general public is via his, his green zone rating system. And, and we That's sort right. of hinted, we've hinted this a few times before. What did he do? He went through and quantitatively, you know, ran the numbers, you know, what factors have been statistically proven to add value to, to you know, investing decisions. And he, he, it came down to six kind of major factors, and then each of these major factors have sub-factors. For example, value. You've always heard value investing works. Okay, but, but what does that mean? Are we talking about price-earnings ratio? Are we and if so, over what time period? Are we talking about price sales? Okay, over what time period? Well, he ran various scenarios and he built composites based on various metrics and various time periods within those metrics and the result is is very robust it is uh, you know to think about this the green zone power rating system uses six factors three price base which would be the price movement of the stock uh you have momentum size and volatility and then you have three fundamental this is going to be more looking at you know the the, the business aspect a little bit as well as um, you know, the value. So you have value, quality, and growth. Um, and, and these six factors that we look at are the six most standardized factors that investors, institutional, all the way to Main Street investors look at. It's just the issue is, is that, you know, these, you know, Main Street to institutional investors are maybe only looking at one or two of these factors, and they're looking at different parts of it. These six factors underneath those have, I think, 80 sub sub metrics that are underneath it and we score them on a, you know a score of zero to 100 with zero being you know high risk all the way to 100 being strong bullish and these provide an overall 
rating of a stock. And we rate these stocks against themselves. There's about 5,000 of them that we rate currently, and we're looking at trying to expand those. And, and you know, this is available at moneymarkets.com. You can use this system for free. Uh, type in any ticker, and it breaks down uh, the six factors scores of each uh, of each stock, as well as the overall. So, so let's say, for example, you are looking as a value investor, and you are looking at Micron Technology. Use that ticker as MU. So you go to the Green Zone Power Rating System on moneymarkets.com. You type in the ticker MU. You look at it. You see what the overall score is, but you're really not worried about that. You want to see, is this a good value for me to invest in? You look at our value score and you see that it is not. It is actually, you know, I, I don't have it in front of me, but it's a tech stock. So I'm just going to make the assumption that it's probably not a very good value anyway. <laughs> um, and also, why are you investing in a tech stock for value? But it, I digress. Just use it as an example. Um, and you see it and you see that, no, this isn't a very good value investment at all. However, you do see that its growth prospects are extremely strong. Um, it rates very high on, on growth and it also does very well on quality. So you go into this with a mindset of, I'm going to look at this as a tech stock, as a value investor, but I look at it, it's not good as a value investing stock, but I see these other two metrics that I hadn't even considered. I'm like, okay, well, maybe this changes my mind a little bit. Maybe this, uh, you know, I, I, I don't see it's a good value, but I do confirm that fundamentally it's still a very good stock um, just because value is kind of an outlier, but yet as a tech company, it does have good value. It does have good quality. Um, so, you know, it, it, give, it appears you, it puts all these factors together. These are the six most widely used factors that investors use across the board. And it puts them all together. Um, and it's done over different time frames. All the factors are done over anywhere from six months to three to five years. So it's not just taking a six-month view or a short-term view or a long-term view. It's taking a look at all these. Like I said, there's about 80 underlying metrics to all this. And it comes out with six main factor ratings and one overall. And that's and we make it very, very simple for you to do that. And it's what it's meant to be is it's meant to be a guide for you to look at um, a stock and start really judging all sides of the equation of a stock to give you a more accurate picture of what this stock's not only what it has it done before, but what is its potential down the road? Now, is this predictive? No, it is not. Um, this is not AI. This is not telling you that in six months, it's going to be this. But well, our mean, research, it, it's predictive in the sense it, it, that it, it is, tells it, you it, 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 it tells it you that stocks that have historically had Correct. these characteristics have gone on to there. outperform. Yes, I was getting there, but yeah, that's true. Um, if if you see a stock that maybe rate very rates very high on size, let's say it rates a ninety nine on size, it's got a market cap of let's just throw out three hundred and fifty million dollars. Um, what our research tells us is that all stocks being equal, stocks of the same type of um, industry, smaller stocks, meaning those with smaller market caps, tend to outperform those with larger market caps, meaning they provide you larger returns. This is something that is statistically proven. It is very factual. Um, and that's why we present it that way. So it does, in a sense, give you a look into the future to suggest that, okay, if I'm looking at Apple and I'm looking at XYZ, Apple has a market cap of a trillion dollars, um, actually even more than that. And, and XYZ has a market cap of $350 million. History and research shows tells me that XYZ company is going to have stronger returns and provide me with a larger gain than Apple. Now, is Apple more well-known? Absolutely. Is it still a good stock? Sure it is. Are you going to see a 10% gain in a year? Probably not. 
Whereas with XYZ, it's a much smaller stock. It moves a lot, a lot swifter than Apple does, and it has a lot more room on its runway to run. And that's what studies show. And that's what this rating system helps you, helps you determine. So basically what we do is we give you the model. We show you the model, we give it to you, and we actually do that legwork for you um, to be able to look at each stock get a picture of that stock, what has it done, what are its, what's its potential down the road, and then finally, most importantly, is this something I should be looking at as an investment opportunity, or should I be staying and, away from it? And Matt, for, for people not familiar, where do they go to, to access that? You go to moneyandmarkets.com, very simple, all spelled out, moneyandmarkets.com. We've got a search bar in the top right-hand corner. Click that, put in a ticker, and you'll pull up you know, the six-factor uh, ratings. You'll pull up the overall rating. You'll see other data. We've got stock chart involved there, company information. It's financial information is all there, plus any research that we've written that's published on our website about that particular company is all there as well. And we've done research on a, a ton of them. On a lot. <laughs> we have. Um, so so it, it's all right there for you. It's moneyandmarkets.com. Money and spelled out markets.com. So if you want to moneyball your investments, if you want to quantify them, if you want to kind of take the guesswork out of it and take a, a quantitative, logical, um, you know, mechanical approach here, do what Matt says, go to moneymarkets.com, just put in a few tickers, play with it. It's available for free. It's a very, it's a, it's a insanely valuable to, tool and it's yours to play with for free. So with that, Matt, we are out of time. Thanks for sharing your sports knowledge with us. I always enjoy it. Very good. And, and for our, our viewers out there, thanks for tuning in and we hope to see you next week. And until then, go out and make yourself some money.